Well, tonight, um, I'd like to turn your attention back to one of the pivotal events of the life of Jesus Christ. We're going to look together um, this evening at uh, a long passage of scripture, but we're going to selectively pull out of it from uh, John chapter 11. And it speaks of a familiar, uh, a familiar uh, event in Jesus's ministry to many of us, um, the revivification of Lazarus. Try and say that a few times, a revivification of Lazarus. Now, why did I use that fancy word? Well, it's actually, it is not a true resurrection. Um, and, and one of the things that I want to make a distinction tonight is the dis distinction between the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus Christ is the first fruits, as the scriptures say, of the resurrection. He was raised from the dead never to die again. Jesus Christ is living now, eternally. And he is the first fruits, and we will follow. But Lazarus was raised from the dead, and he died again. So we'll see, though, that this, this event that happens in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ was a real trigger point for the religious authorities. And in fact, it was the beginning of the end. It was a sign of Jesus and his power. And it was a sign of what he would ultimately accomplish on the cross. But it was a trigger point. And as we look at this passage together this evening, I want you to see that Jesus's behavior is very interesting. As he learns about his sick friend, and it's instructive for us, as all of us today are facing the reality of sickness and death in our own lives and in the lives of our loved ones. So let's consider this as we read God's word, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi. The Jews are just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he just meant he was uh, taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, 
And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard the news that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind not also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet, bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, this is the word of the Lord, and it endures for all time. Let us ask his blessing upon our unpacking of his word this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, and we see here spoken in this text, your power, your power, Lord, that created the world. When you said, let there be light, there was light. And when you call Lazarus forth from the dead, he came. Or there is no power like this in all of the universe. And so, oh Lord, as we approach your word this evening, we recognize that by your Holy Spirit, that power still exists. And I pray, oh Lord, that tonight you would demonstrate that power that you would call people to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that you'd use this weak individual 
to be your vehicle by your grace. In your precious name, I pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that we often feel as Christians is the challenge of living in our postmodern society. And particularly in Canadian society where we try and be as, as least offensive as possible. One of the questions that often comes up for us as Christians is why do we bother to try and convert people to Christianity? It seems so backwards and regressive in our day and age of tolerance, supposedly. Isn't it nicer just to leave people be, to believe, to let them just believe what they want to believe? It's great that it works for you, right? I'm, I'm really happy for you, Chris, that you've got your system and you're a pastor and you're, but you know what, just, just leave other people alone. They're fine as they do what they want to do. Why, why bother trying to persuade them? We're glad that it works for you, but why push things? Shouldn't we just focus on being harmonious and living peacefully and just not stir the pot? I'm sure you've heard this before. And I want to say to you that tonight, the answer to that challenge is found right here, right today, because of Easter, because of Resurrection Sunday, whatever you want to call it. This historic day when Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 some odd years ago. That, my friends, changed everything. Everything. That pivotal event in human history. Everything from the Garden of Eden when humanity first sinned and death entered the world. Everything in all of history anticipated that event before it happened. And everything since then finds its hope and its encouragement in reflecting and believing that event took place. That day when God would provide a savior to reverse the curse of sin and death. And that's what the resurrection is all about. It's reversing the curse of sickness and death. Now, I don't care who you are tonight. I can guarantee that every one of us has been affected by the curse of death. And the reality is that all of us watching tonight will have to account for it ourselves in some way. We might be able to pretend for a while that it's not going to happen, but just like a, a person jumping out of a plane tries to defy gravity, they will soon come with a crushing realization. So all of us who deny that we will die and have to give an account to the God who made us will face that reality. And I don't say that lightly. The truth that we are going to face the God who made us should make our knees knock, especially if we know something about our Bibles. Because the God that's revealed here in the scriptures is a God who expects a standard that we cannot achieve by our own efforts. We can't even achieve it by being very religious and attending church like this. Attending church, giving money to the poor. Problem is that the Bible very clearly says that our best deeds are as filthy rags. They are not worth anything in terms of God's eternal economy. 
because we are so sinful that we are incapable of earning our own salvation. Because God doesn't just look at what we do. He also looks at why we do things. And even when we do good things, we're often tainted in our rationale and reason for doing this. And we might be able to fool others with our humble brags and everything else, but we don't fool God. The Bible is pretty clear about that. It says that no one in themselves is righteous. Paul puts it very clearly in Romans 3 when he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a lot of negatives. That, by the way, includes me, Pastor Chris, and Pastor John, and every other human being. So what hope is there for any of us? Well, the hope is garnered in the resurrection. It's centered in the resurrection. Jesus gave us another way. He did what none of us could do. And as God took on, on flesh, he lived a sinless life. And he was able to pay the price for our sin because he was able to pay the price in a way that you and I couldn't. We're always trying to balance our own account with God, and we can't do that. But Jesus was sinless perfection. So he could bear the wrath of God against our sins on the cross of Jesus Christ. So we need to understand that this is a central belief. The resurrection, the reason why Easter or Resurrection Sunday or just the resurrection in general is a big deal is because it is central to our understanding of Christianity. And without the resurrection, there is no Christianity, right? Which is why it is sad to see churches abandon this central truth. If we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then what are we gathering for? Paul, in that great chapter on the resurrection that Pastor John will be preaching from next Sunday, says in 1 Corinthians 15, the following, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the resurrection. So why do we preach the gospel? Why do we tell others about Christianity and try and point them to Christ? Is it because we feel superior to them? Absolutely not. It's the exact opposite. We recognize our sinfulness. And we recognize the curse of death and sin. But think of it this way. If you knew the cure for COVID-19 and didn't share that, what kind of a person would you be? Would you get it if you could? Of course. Some of us have heard of the promising treatments with chloroquine and hydro, hydroxychloroquine. Okay, I cannot, I'm not probably pronouncing that right. The, the doctors can, can uh, correct me later. I had never heard of those. I'm sure some of you had never heard of those, but some of you all already have heard of those. And millions of people hearing those names and hearing them being mentioned by various officials have Googled them and have said, oh, can I get a hold of these? 
so I can use them and take them uh, in, in preparation or take them to help my relatives. Why? Why is there such interest in two old malaria drugs? Well, because, because they offer the promise of a cure. But much more secure in that is a cure for death itself. And that's why we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, because only in Christ Jesus and believing in him can we have everlasting life and fellowship with him. And we ought to share this if we have loved ones. That's our motivation. Christ's love sent him to the cross. And our desire to share this message with the whole world is out of love, just as Christ loved us. Think of it this way. If you were one of the 500 people or so that witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ, and you saw someone who was in a difficult situation, wouldn't you want to share the good news? Say, there is there's something beyond what we can see, taste, touch, smell, and feel. There is something beyond just the material, that there is the supernatural. There is this conquering of sin and death in Jesus Christ. I've seen it for myself. I've seen it. I want to give testimony. Francis and Laura gave us their testimonies this evening. And in some sense, their testimony is a reflection of the great testimony that Jesus Christ has come and has saved sinners like them and like us. We're going to look at this passage here in John 11 under three short headings this evening. First, we're going to see the sovereignty of Jesus over all things. Secondly, we're going to see the loving compassion of Jesus. And finally, we'll see the power of Jesus. So first of all, let's consider together the sovereignty of Jesus. One of the things that's important for us to understand when we come to a text like this, and I know we're not going as we normally do every week, week by week through the same scriptures. So sometimes we just land and, and we don't have all of the context. And it's important for us to have a little background and context. One of the things that we need to know is that this event in John 11 occurs at a high point in Jesus's ministry. Initially, he'd been rejected by his people and driven away and he'd gone to the Samaritan lands because he had come to his own, but his own had not received him. But in the chapters leading up to this one, in chapter 11, we see that he was starting to get crowds out to hear him preach. And from the disciples' point of view, this seemed like a real turning point. You can understand how these 12 disciples were, would be excited that all of a sudden this guy that they put all their chips in uh, was starting to get traction with people. Back in John chapter 10, verse 41, it summarized that trend that was going on at the time. It said this, And many came to him, and they said, John, speaking of John the Baptist, did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. So we start to see that, that Jesus' message is, is gathering traction. But then we come to chapter 11, and it begins there in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So why was this a problem? Why is that, if Jesus is riding this wave, why is it a problem that he gets this message? Well, it has everything to do with where Lazarus was located. Lazarus was located with Mary and Martha in Bethany. And Bethany 
was a mere three or so kilometers away from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was where all of the opposition to Jesus lived. This is where the rulers and the Sanhedrin were, and they were out for blood. We didn't read it, but later on in the chapter, they actually do literally commit themselves to kill Jesus. This is where his fiercest critics are. So you can understand from the disciples' point of view, they don't really want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. But we see that throughout the Gospels, that's Jesus' direction. He knows that he must go to Jerusalem. He must face the wickedness of sin. And he must die. In fact, in Luke, it says he set his, his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. Because he knew that only by going to Jerusalem, only by going to the cross at Calvary, could he offer hope and help to all who would believe in him. Only by dying on the cross and facing the wrath of God and absorbing the wrath of God, could he bring salvation to us. But for the disciples, this is a problem. Now, on, we see that this is a problem for them, but not necessarily for Jesus. Look at how Jesus replies as he hears about this message of him going to, to Bethany. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, as we look at this, it shows incredible confidence on Jesus' part. And it must have been of some comfort to his disciples as they, they heard this, although we'll see later that, that Thomas is still sure that they're going to die when they go to Jerusalem. But they knew that Jesus knew people. He had shown in his ministry his power. We'd seen it with the Samaritan woman at the well where he knew her whole background. He was able to speak directly into her situation. What a comfort it is to have a God who knows us completely. Right? When we get to know each other, we get through all these layers and we're like onions peeling things back. God cuts to the core. He knows us. And he loves us anyway. And back in, in John chapter 2, we see that this, was, that this aspect of who Jesus was and his knowledge and his power was known. John 2.24 says it clearly. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to the people around him. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus' knowledge was clear. So the disciples must have reasoned that if Jesus said Lazarus wasn't going to die, he wouldn't die. But that's not what Jesus actually says here. He only says that the ultimate purpose of Lazarus' sickness is not death. <coughs> something greater. <coughs> in fact, we see that Jesus's actions here are puzzling. They're unusual. Look at what he does here in verse 6. Is this what you expect Jesus to do when he hears that someone who he loves is dying? Now, Jesus loved Mar Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That was strange. Why would he do that? What would you do if you heard that someone was sick? You'd probably run to them. Why? Why doesn't Jesus do that in this situation? Well, there are many reasons. But he could only rest where he was if he knew exactly what he was going to do 
And he knew exactly when Lazarus was going to die. In fact, Lazarus likely died shortly after the messengers first came to him. Because later on in the chapter, it says that he had been in the tomb for four days. And if we count and do the math, we can see that he likely would have died just shortly after that. Jesus knew exactly when Jesus was going to die, and he knew exactly what was going to happen. We see this in verse 15, where it says, <clears throat> where, it's, where he says this, he said, um, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. What do we make of this? Well, clearly, John is making it plain that Jesus has absolute sovereignty over this. And his disciples knew this, but it's interesting, they don't, didn't know why. They knew that he was sovereign, but they didn't know why. Why would Jesus delay? It made no sense. But it's interesting that his disciples trusted him. Even Doubting Thomas, right? The famous Doubting Thomas, the twin, determines to go with Jesus to do what? To die at Bethany, verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, I think, gets a bad rap a lot of the times. But here we see he is committed, at least, to facing death here. Now, it's a really important point for us to reflect on in our own situation. Because as we look at the disciples and their reaction, we can see in them something of the situation we find ourselves in as we look at our society and our environment today. Um, as we consider this, how this COVID virus has spread so quickly around the world and, and brought the economy to a halt. And, and, and we don't know why, this is ultimately happening. And I, I don't mean that in terms of we can't trace it back to the wet markets in Wuhan or whatever it is. We don't know why on a cosmic level this is happening. Why would God allow such death and disruption? Why does he allow evil? And this is an interesting aspect that we can engage in here. It's kind of, it, it's difficult because we know that God is sovereign, and yet we don't know why he's doing certain things. It's kind of like when we're children, and I can speak to the children here uh, tonight, when our parents do some things that we don't really understand why. Why do they insist on these things? They hold us accountable to our chores, and they never just seem to relax. Maybe as we grow up a little bit later, we start to see things. Uh, there's that famous quote that's been attributed to Mark Twain. I don't think it's actually him, but... But he puts it this way. He says, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have that old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned in those seven years. Right? Our perspective changes to a certain extent as we're, ex we're exposed to more. We see the disciples have a certain trust in Jesus based on what they've seen, but they still struggle to believe throughout. And that's why when we look at situations like we're facing, we can see that there are often a multitude of different reactions to the situation. Sometimes Christians can descend into anxiety and fear. 
And even mature Christians who know better can do the same. But those who have experienced God's mercy and his, his care can respond differently. I remember the, the opening to the book, Knowing God, where Jay Packer is walking with his friend who's just lost his career. And he's worried about how he's going to, um, to process this. And basically his friend says to J.I. Packer, he says, don't worry, I have known God. I have known his goodness. And so there's a certain resiliency that comes even when we don't understand the exact situation that's there. So why does Jesus respond this way? Well, we get a little bit of a view why in his statement here. He has a greater purpose. Verse 15, he says, and for your sake, I am glad. He's actually happy. He's joyful that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus is saying to them, this is an opportunity for you to receive the gift of faith, for you to believe in the power of God to cancel sin and death. And he has a greater purpose. And this is something that I think is important for us to understand, is that God's purposes are greater than us. Isaiah says his thoughts are higher than us. His ways are higher than us. They are beyond our finding out. And sometimes we find that offensive in our 21st century. We think we know everything. I mean, if you look at where we've gone in my father's lifetime, from uh, radios that are the size of, 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 uh, of huge boxes to tiny little transistors. And we, we, we come in a long way as... As, as, a, as a society in terms of technology. But we are still so far below where our God is. Now, does that sound condescending to you? Well, guess what? It should. It should. Because God condescended. Jesus condescended. Even though he had equality with God, he did not consider equality with God something we grasp, but made himself nothing taking on flesh and becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Philippians 2. Jesus came down to show us his love. We might not understand all the reasons that he's allowed evil and sickness and death to continue, but he is our God. And just because we can't see the purpose, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. One of the most beloved passages to believers is one that we've looked together recently uh, in our exposition of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and it says, And we know that for those who love God, and all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, as we look at the situation in our world around us with COVID and everything else, that statement is really being put to the test, isn't it? But if God is who he says he is, and we believe that he is who he says he is, then we can take comfort in his promises. And we can see that his promise is fulfilled. Later on in this chapter, Lazarus's sickness and death serve a greater purpose, a sign of Christ's power and his ultimate victory that he will accomplish on the cross for our sins. Let me ask you, Christian, tonight, if you're a believer is this where your comfort is found? Is Christ alone where your hope is found? Yes, he works through means, through doctors and scientists. But we also need to know that he also works through viruses. 
Perhaps tonight you're actually considering the Christian message seriously again. Let me ask you that question. Do you think that that's an accident that you're thinking in this way? Do you think it's an accident that this is happening at a time when there is a worldwide crisis, when so many other things have been pulled away from you? Do you think your interest in the gospel is because you're smart? No. It's because of the mercy of God. God could have judged the world immediately for its sin. He's entirely capable of doing that. But he didn't. And he hasn't yet. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's followed by Gen- Joshua, John 3.17, which says that Jesus Christ did not come to judge the world. He came to save it. And that's the message of the gospel. God is merciful and gracious to us. Even though we are, des- we are deserving of sin and death, the consequences of the curse, he restrained himself. He restrains himself. Second Peter tells us in chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of our God. We may not understand why he does exactly why he does, but we understand who he is in his sovereignty and in his, 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 his power. God's desire is to bring us to repentance. That's why our message this evening is the same as Jesus was to those who asked him back in Luke 13 that we looked at a few weeks ago. They asked Jesus when they saw death and destruction around them where God was in this. And what was Jesus' answer? He didn't give him, didn't give them that direct answer and said, this is what is going on. No, what did he say? He says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, when we see great reminders of death and destruction, what we must do is turn towards the sovereign God who is at work, even through those things, for whatever purposes he has to bring about his glory. You see, Jesus is utterly sovereign, but he's also, secondly, loving, lovingly compassionate. And we see that so clearly in our passage this evening, don't we? We see this in his encounter with Martha, busy, anxious Martha. She comes to him, and she is struggling. I think it's wonderful how John sets the context here in in verse 5. Look at how he describes uh, the situation. He says, Uh, Jesus, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John was fascinated with the love of Jesus Christ. And he often reflected on the fact that he was the loved one of Christ. Jesus, John, the disciple, the disciple who was loved. He, he, He delights in this. And we see Martha coming here. And the context is that Jesus loves her. He loves her and her sister and Lazarus. But consider her approach to to him. One of the things that that encourages us is she comes in faith. They come in faith. They send this message in faith. They know that Jesus loves them. And in fact, that's the whole basis on which they approach him. 
verse 3. It's not that Lazarus loves Jesus. It's that Jesus loves Lazarus. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now that seems like a very simple detail that Jesus loved Lazarus. But that, how they phrase that is reflective of a wonderful truth. It's fundamental because our salvation in our situation is not on the basis of our love for God or somehow working up faith in God, but it is God condescending and coming down and loving and saving and manifesting his grace to us. Our salvation is not resting on our efforts. It's on the basis of the love and the compassion of our God. And I would say to you, just to take a moment, take a little meta moment. If you're listening tonight to this message and you're not really a believer or you don't know, if you're not sure, this is the extent of God's amazing grace to you. God's love to you is to confront you with this truth through his word, to show you his sovereignty and love and power and invite you to believe in him so that you will not perish and have eternal life. You see, this whole thing, this whole event is in God's purpose and plan to expose you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's truly fantastic when you start to think about it, to display his love. And it's, it's a wonderful love here. If we look at, at Jesus' response to the other sister in verse 28, in Mary, she comes to him. Um, Martha calls and she, she goes to Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Mary runs to him here and she comes to him in great grief. And then we see what happens in verse 32 when she comes to him. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, she comes to him in faith. She knows his power. She's seen it. And she comes and she falls at his feet. It's very interesting. If we look at Mary throughout uh, the Gospels here, in, in Luke 11 and John 11 and John 12, she's characterized as consistently falling at Jesus' feet. She listens to him when he comes and teaches in her house. She worships him when she anoints him with the the, the, the nard, the, the expensive oil, and she washes him there. And here she is, following at his feet and sorrowing. She comes to him because he loves her, because he's compassionate. She takes refuge in him. And this is the refuge of every Christian, is to take refuge in the arms of our Savior, to trust him. And what does Jesus do here? Is he an impassive and, and distant God here? No. Here we see Jesus' compassion and his love displayed. Verse 33, he says this. <clears throat> when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus Here we see the wonder of a God who has taken on flesh. He is both transcendent and above all, but he has taken on flesh, and so he is imminent. He is present in their lives. 
He is a God who is compassionate and kind. And it manifests itself so profoundly in that simple and shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Literally in the Greek, it's a different crying than we see earlier in the chapter, which is more of a wailing. This is where literally it says in the Greek that he shed tears. He shed tears. It was a sincere and compassionate moment of our God, a beautiful, wonderful tenderness. But you may be listening to this tonight and you're thinking, well, wait a second here. If, if, if God is, is, is sovereign over all of this and he's compassionate here, that doesn't seem to add up. Is sovereignty and compassion, can those two things coexist? Right? You can't be sovereign over this and, 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 and ultimately be compassionate, can you? Well, I like how Phil Johnson uh, deals with this. He says, a lot of people think that if God is really sovereign, he cannot express any sincere wish for things to be other than what they are. Okay? But that is not the case when we look at the scriptures, biblically speaking. We see God lamenting over and over again of the effects of sin and the destruction of humanity. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares Yahweh, uh, Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And we see, again, Jesus in his humanity, in, in, that, in that perfect uh, hypostatic union, where fully God and fully man. We see this in his responses throughout the scriptures. Uh, in Matthew 23, for example, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He grieves over this. But you might be also thinking, why is Jesus weeping here? Why does Jesus weep if he's sovereign over the situation? There's no need to cry, right? If he's sovereign, he knows that Lazarus is going to be jumping around in a few minutes of time. But I believe the reason why Jesus is grieving here is that he is entering into the grief of the way in which sin affects all of us. He is the sympathetic high priest. He enters into our suffering. He's a compassionate God. As Hebrews 4.15 puts it, for we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus enters into our despair. Jesus enters into our sadness, and he helps us. And we see this. We see how he handles Martha, the other sister. He handles her tenderly. She's full of sadness, and she has faith in her sadness. And this is the interesting thing. The Bible does not promise that we will not have sadness. The Bible does not promise that we will not have pain and suffering and loss. If anyone is telling you that, they are not reading the scriptures and they're not being faithful to them. No. Martha here is full of sadness, but she's full of faith. She knows and trusts and believes in Jesus, not because she loves him, but because he first loved her. 
And she's struggling. She's all about the ifs, the ands, and the buts. But Jesus' response to Martha is fascinating. Again, he doesn't respond with a direct response to the question. He doesn't say, don't worry, Jesus is here. I will raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, it's certainly not out of the question. In fact, look at what Martha herself says. She comes with faith that he could do this. She said, Martha said to him, I know. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She knows that he has the power. She doesn't doubt that aspect. But she's, she's, she's trying to figure out what is, what is going on here. But how does Jesus comfort her? Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. No. How does Jesus address this? And this is very instructive, I think, and very helpful for us if we pay attention. He brings her instead a promise. A promise. Phil Johnson, I think, puts it well. He says, God's word brings comfort in promises, not in explanations. The promise that he gives her, and we'll see this in a moment, is the promise that he is the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's how he comforts her. He brings her a promise. God's word brings comfort in promises, not in explanations. The questions of how and why belong to the Lord, says Phil Johnson. He gives us promises to sustain us. Explanations require no faith. Promises are good to those who have faith. I think that's such a helpful distinction. God's word brings comfort in promises because explanations require no faith. Promises are good to those who have faith. And so that's what Jesus does, is he brings a promise. We see his compassion here in dealing with Martha. No rebuke for a weak faith. He just stresses his power over death. This is the God that we serve. This is the God in Jesus Christ, who is your Savior if you believe in him this evening. He is sovereign. He is loving and compassionate. But all of that wouldn't matter if he did not also have the power to back it up. And that brings us to the climax of the here of the account, which is the declaration and demonstration of his power. And he declares this power in a promise in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? How wonderful is that? Do you see what he's saying here? What does he mean when he says, I am the resurrection? Oh, there's so much pregnancy of meaning in that statement. I am, right? I am that I am. That is the, the covenant name of Yahweh. He is declaring that he is God, but he is also the resurrection and the life. And here Jesus is trying to demonstrate to you that he is the resurrection raised for you. 
And that's the important thing for each and every one of you watching tonight is to recognize that Jesus went to the cross and was raised for you. Jesus is not saying here, and I appreciate how Tim Keller brings this out. He says, he's not saying I will be resurrected, though he will be. And he's not saying I will show you how you can live so that you will be resurrected. He's not saying that either. He's saying, I am the resurrection. I am your resurrection. I am the way anybody gets resurrected. My resurrection is yours. And Keller makes, I think, a really good point when he says that that the essence of Christianity is often found in the personal pronouns, in the personal pronouns. If you're here saying this evening, for example, the Son of God was born, he died, he was raised, he ascended, he's coming again. That doesn't really make you a Christian. You can recount facts. But Keller says, if you say, the Son of God was born for me, he died for me, he was raised for me, he was ascended to the right hand of the Father for me, and he's coming to cut again for me, that's the essence of Christianity. Those personal pronouns. And I think it's so interesting that the way that Jesus ends this promise, this personal Uh, revelation is to ask that question. Do you believe this? He wants to know if this beloved woman believes this for herself. And God wants that to know that about you this evening. Do you believe this for yourself? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life that there is no hope outside of Jesus Christ, that there is no salvation There is no hope for you in your sin. There is no hope for you in eternity outside of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you believe that? This is not some dispassionate intellectual thing. This is God challenging you directly through his word, by his Holy Spirit. Do you believe this? If you believe this, you will live eternally you will be with christ forever and this is such a wonderful truth because there are lots of us who think that we'll never be free of all the guilt all of the sins of our past our failures we'll never be able to forget them we'll never be able to 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 deal we'll always have to to live with them but god here says no On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price. He bought you. He has given you redemption. And you are no longer your own. You're his. So that when it comes to the final judgment, you don't stand on your own account. Jesus says, they're mine. They're mine. Their names are written on my hands. I love that, by the way. In sign language, this is Jesus. Our names are written in his hands. It's the glory. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, God cleared our accounts. Some of us worry about debt accumulation in this time, and we don't know where anything is going to come from. But the real payment that matters is not to the bank. The real payment that matters is to God the judge. 
and the payment that he accepts is not Visa or MasterCard or your bank account or your good works. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, which is available to us because he has been raised from the dead and his sacrifice has been accepted by God. And through him, we have access to our God. Do you understand that this evening? Do you understand that God has paid your sins in full? If you believe in him, if you trust in him, he has paid your sins in full. That's the glory. That's the joy of the resurrection. That's why Easter, that's why the day of resurrection is such a source of joy to real Christians because a cure has been found. Real help and real hope come to the sick and the dying. And the reality is all of us are sick and dying. We are sick with sin, and we will ultimately face the consequences. As the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Do you understand this is how God works? In his grace and his mercy, you do not have to rest on your works any longer. Are you living in that? That's what Jesus is asking Martha. That's what he's asking you this evening. Do you believe this? This is the essence of the gospel. If you believe this, if you live in that, you will be saved. Not on the basis of your love for Jesus, but on his promise, on his love, on his compassion, and on his power. If you believe, in the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save a wretched and helpless sinner like me and like you, and that my only hope is Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead, triumphing over sin and death. If that is your hope, then you have, and that is your belief, then you have this promise for yourself. You can appropriate that promise by faith. And it can sustain you. It can help you. It can give you gas in your tank to face the uncertainties of life in the COVID age or whatever age you find yourself. For the word of God is sufficient. And the spirit of God comforts us and helps us. He gives hope to sinners. All that's left here in our passage is for Jesus to show his glory and his power. And he does this. Verse 40, <clears throat> he says this, Then Jesus, deeply moved and came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. He decomposed in the heat of Palestine. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone in faith. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. Here's the purpose, to show his glory. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come forth. 
I think it's interesting. There's a famous quote by a Puritan, Matthew Henry. He said, Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if he just said, come forth, then all of the dead would have been raised to life, hearing the words of their master. Because this is what happens. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hand and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. So what do you make of this? What do you make of Jesus' question? Do you believe this? There's really only two paths out of this. You either believe it and accept it and live your life according to it fully and completely. Or you deny it. And you move away and you look at other means. It's amazing, even in the presence of evidence. A lot of people say, well, if you give me evidence that, that Jesus could do all of these things, well, then I'll believe. But if you look at the, the evidence that is before them, right, the chief priests and, and the rulers and the authorities, they're not actually interested in what is ultimately true, right? What happened? Lazarus becomes this amazing testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. He went everywhere. And you can imagine, right? If, if you had witnessed someone who died and then came to life again, that would be an unbelievable thing. And it would be a wonderful opportunity. And if Jesus had been a charlatan and a failure, they would have tried to point that out. But that's not how they, uh, they, they um, responded. What did they do? Well, John 12, verse 10 to 11 talks about this. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because, saying, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in controlling their power, controlling their lives, in being their own gods. And many of us, when we hear the gospel and we reject it, and we say, well, you know, that's great, that's good for you. What we're really saying is, we don't need you, God. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God gave them, as their God, as the one who made them, he gave them directions. And they decided they didn't want to do it. It says that Eve looked at the forbidden fruit, and she saw it was good to eat, and she decided in her own wisdom to take and eat it. She became her own God. She did not submit to the word of God. God in his grace, though, showed mercy to her and Adam. And God in his grace and his mercy can show that to you this evening. Though you may be the worst rebellious one who has turned away from God, who, who has nothing to recommend himself to God, that's exactly who God came to save. He didn't come to save the righteous, the ones who are goody two-shoes. No, he came to save sinners who knew their need of him. Do you know your need of God this evening? Do you know that you are dead in your trespasses and sin? And that you can be made alive by the power of the gospel, by the power of Jesus Christ, calling you out of your sin to put your trust in him. Will you ignore that plea and that call? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe this? If you do, believe, confess, and rejoice. Because our God is gracious. He who has ears to hear, 
let them hear. Let us pray. Father, we come into your presence this evening. And, O oh Lord, we entrust ourselves to your Holy Spirit. It is your word that is preached. It is your promises that have been proclaimed. Would you be at work in our hearts and our minds? Would you help us in our unbelief to believe, to trust, to know the peace of God, which transcends all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, so that we can face the uncertainty of sickness and the certainty of death with confidence, confidence in Christ's power to save and to help us. Help us, Lord, to believe and to cling to your promises by faith, even as you demonstrate your sovereignty, your love and compassion, and your power. May you be at work in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.